0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. And before we uh, welcome Dr. Pennington to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 21, 23 through 32. And if you're able, please stand. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Hey, good morning. Good morning. When I say the word riddle, I wonder what kind comes to mind for you. If there are any hardcore Batman fans, you may think of the Riddler, for some reason that's what I always think of, an important supervillain in the DC world who comes in and out of the various Batman stories, he will be in the new movie that's coming out, I gather. But maybe more likely for you, when you hear the word riddle, you might think of things that when you were a child uh, that are that you heard that people would say these things to you or or maybe if you're a parent you might have this kind of fun dialogue with your children about a riddle for example i'm tall when i'm young and i'm short when i'm old what am i and you ponder that it's a candle or what has a head but no or a neck but no head that would be a bottle or where does success come before work only in a dictionary. You know, that one's got a little edge to it a little bit. Uh, but the, these, are, these are what we've already think of when you think of riddles. But what you may not know is that as far back as we know, for thousands of years, riddles have actually been a really important part of religious and philosophical thinking. For example, in Zen Buddhism, the Kwan, or which is basically a riddle, is a paradoxical question that is used to provoke the most important thing in Zen Buddhism, great doubt in meditation so that you can open yourself to see things differently. In ancient Greek philosophy, Zeno and Socrates and Plato and all the way up to modern philosophers, they would regularly use paradoxes or riddles to make you wonder, to make you think For example, maybe you've heard this one before, can an omnipotent being make a rock too large for himself to lift? Or one famous one also from Greek philosophy, if you begin to restore a ship by replacing each of its wooden parts, is it the same ship and at what point? These are the kind of riddles that people have been asking for a long time to make you think. Well, there are lots of riddles in the Bible as well, whether you realize it or not. I don't know if you remember the story of Samson from the book of Judges, where he has this big wedding feast and he has all these Philistine guests and he asks them a riddle. It's in this phrase, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. And he challenges them to answer and they cheat and get the answer. So he ends up killing most of them. But it's the answer to that is honey from a beehive that has, is in a lion's carcass. Now, Samson's not the most virtuous or best person in the Bible for sure, but we actually see that the great wise people of Israel's history regularly spoke in and interpreted riddles. That's explicitly said about Daniel, for example, in Daniel 5.12. And of course, we should think of Solomon, the first son of David, who is so wise that people come from all over the world, like the queen of Sheba comes to listen to him speak, to understand, to ask him questions so that she can get his wisdom. And he writes a lot of these things down in the Proverbs. So what is a riddle? A riddle is again, a question or a statement or a little story that requires some ingenuity to answer. And it often has a kind of tension to it to make you see in a certain way. Now, why am I talking about riddles? Because you've probably never thought of it this way, but the greatest riddler in the Bible is actually Jesus himself. Jesus regularly taught in riddles. We often call them parables. It's actually the same word in Greek and Hebrew, different words in English. For riddle or parable, he taught in ways, he taught stories, and he gave analogies to challenge us to see, to to pay attention, to think about things in a different way. And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, we've actually seen a ton of parables. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw the very powerful one of the laborers in the vineyard. And now here... In our text of Holy Scripture today, we see Jesus, the wise sage, the philosopher, even, the ultimate wise son of David, using riddles, challenging, upending questions at this final stage in his ministry. In fact, for the next five weeks, as we finish up Matthew 21 and 22, and before we start our Advent series right after Thanksgiving, we're gonna see that it's one long conversation. Over the next five sermons is one long conversation between Jesus and the religious rulers, and it's all about riddles and parables to see who really knows God. And it all starts, this long dialogue for several chapters, starts right here in our text for today. So I'm gonna pause again. I'm gonna pray because we need God's wisdom to understand these things. i want to pray, and then let's jump into our story. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Jesus, we... Believe that you rose from the dead, that you are ascended to the Father, that you are alive and that you have sent and do send your spirit, the spirit of the triune God, to come and reveal. And that's what we need. We don't want to be left to our own devices today. We don't want to be just left to the wisdom of humans. We need to hear from you this morning. So please come by the spirit and open our hearts and our minds to see you rightly. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it and look there. In Matthew 21, we'll also put the verses on the screen there. Our story has two parts. The first part starts in verse 23, and it doesn't waste any time in getting to the conflict. Look at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts. While he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Now, what's going on here? Well, to understand, we have to recall what has just happened. Jesus has been traveling all over the, the Israel countryside, especially in the north, teaching people, healing, blessing people, calling disciples to leave their lives and follow him because the kingdom of God is coming into the world, he says. And now following God's direction, Jesus has come to the last week of his life. And as he prepares to head to Jerusalem, he knows exactly what's going to happen. If you look back to the last several chapters, he knows he's going to be arrested and beaten and tortured and wrongly accused, wrongly tried, and then eventually crucified. He knows that and he's embracing that as the obedient son of God. And when he enters Jerusalem, we see right before this, we've seen this in the last couple of weeks if you've been here, in Matthew 21, when he enters Jerusalem for the, for the last time, there is this very mixed reception. There are tons of people that are following Jesus and proclaiming that he is the son of David. He is the returning king, the promised son of David, who's going to restore God's reign upon the earth, starting here in Jerusalem. So there's lots of people very excited. They're praising God. They're, they're making Jesus' entrance glorious and exciting. But there's another group standing there at what we call the triumphal entry. I always call it the mixed entry because those people are excited, but there's another group standing there with their arms crossed. These are the leaders and the rulers who are already in Jerusalem, and they are not happy about this untrained, non-rabbi, troublemaking, uneducated, overly popular, popular Galilean hick from the sticks who has shown up and causing all this ruckus. I and mean, this is very disruptive, and things are not being done according to their rules and their understanding of how the Bible, what the Bible says. Moreover, they're worried because the Jewish people this time are under the rule of the very oppressive Roman empire. So if things get out of control, they know the Romans are just going to come down and crush everyone. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is like someone really walking around a fireworks factory with a flaming torch. That's what's going on here in Matthew 21. And then, right before our text, the story from last week, Jesus does something completely unexpected. I think it was unexpected to the Jerusalem leaders, I think it was unexpected to Jesus' his own disciples. He basically straps on a flamethrower and he goes into the temple courtyard, this fireworks factory here, and he starts overturning tables. Pigeons are flying everywhere. People are scrambling to pick up their knocked over stacks of silver coins. You know, sheep are running around. People are chasing them. It's a crazy scene. Chaos. As Pastor Kevin helpfully pointed out last week, what's going on here? is that Jesus is playing his role as a prophet of God. He's showing by this physical action that God is at work doing something new, and it includes judgment. And so now we get to our verses for today. Jesus doesn't, after this temple cleansing event, he doesn't doesn't go hide out, but he's obedient to God. He knows what's going to happen. He has compassion and love for the people. So he risks his own life. He comes back into the temple courts, and he's there teaching. Probably under these beautiful colonnades, walking teachers in these days usually walked around, and people would follow them, people would ask them questions and dialogue with them. And while he's doing this, we see then in verse 23 that we just read, that the truth, quad, the truth squad shows up and they challenge him because they are tired of all this. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They're mad. They're unsettled. They're angry at what he's doing. It's for a lot of reasons. But, you know, Jewish people have always cared about religion a lot. And and there's a a very hardy tradition in the Jewish tradition of, of people dialoguing, debating about religious ideas, and that's all fine. But if you want to actually proclaim to be a teacher within Judaism you have to be a rabbi. If you want to have like authority and have disciples that are following after you, you have to be trained. You have to go through a very long training of education. It's difficult of memorizing all of the Bible and understanding all the traditions. And if you're particularly skilled and diligent at this, you might rise up over decades of doing this to become a person, a rabbi worthy of honor. Maybe for the very, very, very select, you might get invited to be part of this Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that this collection of rabbis that makes all these decisions that convenes. Maybe if, you, if you've recently been watching The Chosen, you can see Nicodemus in there is trying to sort of work his way up in this system. But Jesus <laughs> from Galilee in the north, he's the son of some kind of carpenter or stonemason who was a nobody. There's even rumors that he was illegitimately born, right? There's you know some kind of rumors about that. This guy has no right to be teaching and to be having all these followers. So they do what is understandable. They come up and they challenge him openly. We can understand their reaction, I think. But we also know that they're not coming to Jesus with sincerity, with humility, with openness, with teachability. They have already decided, if you go back in Matthew, you'll see they decided in chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, that they were gonna kill him. They were done with them. They've already accused him of being satanic. They've already challenged his authority. They said he's a blasphemer. They are totally opposed to him. So when they come up to him in the temple courts, they are coming to shame him. They're trying to bust him. They're trying to outwit him. They're trying to show that they're wise and from God and he's just a hick. So they don't arrest him, which would be the easiest way because he's very popular, but they want to shame him. And so they ask him this question. Now here's the question. What is Jesus' answer to their question about his authority? Well, we know as readers of Matthew what the answer is, that Jesus' authority comes from God himself. This is what Matthew's been showing all along. All throughout Matthew, we've seen that God has authorized Jesus as his spokesman because he is the son of God he was born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit his predecessor John the Baptist pointed to him and said he's the Messiah at Jesus' own baptism and at the mount of transfiguration the heavens opened opened and God himself spoke and said this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased listen to him when Jesus begins teaching, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends? In Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then Jesus goes on in the next chapters to show his authority. He walks on water. He casts out demons. He can still storms. In chapters 16 and 18, he's shown to be authoritative in that he says, whatever I and my church says is true about the world, the binding and loosening, what's true, what they say is true in heaven will have been bound in earth as, on earth will have been bound in heaven as well. And do you you know how the Gospel of Matthew ends? This very famous passage we call the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. That's you and me throughout the world. So there's no doubt that Jesus' authority is from God. But look at how he answers them in verse 24. Jesus replied, you want to know where my authority is from? I'll ask you one question. And if you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. You hear the riddle in that? John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it of human origin? Okay, now this, to us, this might seem a little ornery. And like if you, if you go to your kids and say, Hey, I need to ask you a question. And they say, Well, I'm going to ask you a question, right? That's probably not going to go too well. And this seems, this seems a little ornery, but this is, this is this kind of intellectual, philosophical, religious kind of riddle uh, sparring that they would do. And remember, he's not, Jesus isn't afraid of their questions. He's not trying to evade them or, or just be ornery. He knows that no matter what he says, they're not going to believe him. Even if he says the truth, it's from God, they're not going to believe him. So what he's doing, he responds with a question. He responds with a riddle because he's trying to make them think. He knows that they don't think he's right, but he wants to make them think about what their opinion is of him. And so he gives this riddle and it is a scorcher. It is a zinger. He asks them about John the Baptist. And this is the perfect riddle to put back on them because who was John the Baptist? Well, he was Jesus' cousin, He was this wild, non-Jerusalem-based, I always think he looks like Keith Green probably, non-rabbi prophet who was wildly popular. And the masses of the Jewish people, thousands of people from all over Israel had gone out to the Jordan River and been baptized by John. Everybody liked John except for these same people, except for the Jerusalem leaders. Because again, he was too much. He was a troublemaker. He was outside of their system. He was not part of their elite Group. He was low class. He was too radical. And so he's wildly popular. And then he gets beheaded. John the Baptist does, we saw earlier. And so he's honored among all the people except for the Jerusalem leaders. So they're in a real dilemma about how to answer this. And look at their, look at their, question, or their, uh, their response to his question, picking up in 25 and into 26. So they discussed among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, then he'll ask us, why didn't you believe me? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people for they all hold that John as the prophet. So you just imagine, this is like such a rich scene. So they ask him this, he asked them this question and they're over here you know, talking amongst themselves like, okay, well, if we say from God, from heaven, then of course we're busted then because obviously we 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 were not sad when he died. But if we just say from from humans, that he's just come from the earth and he's just man's authority, then the whole crowd's going to turn against us. So notice what happens then. The final answer in this intellectual sparring between Jesus, this nobody, and these wise rabbis, the leaders of all of Jerusalem of Judaism in Jerusalem, their response to Jesus is, we don't know, <laughs> right? I mean, this is such a rich scene. It's even quite funny, I think. So Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. As the wise proverb of Solomon says, Jesus, the wise philosopher here, answers his foolish challengers according to their own folly, I think. Now, our story could just end here with, this, with Jesus sort of winning this little public sparring and then walking away, you know, manuscript drop, he walks away, but it doesn't. And as I said before, this situation begins, that story that we just looked at begins this whole long series of dialogue, this riddles and debates and parables that'll go all the way through the end of chapter 22. It's very important. But Jesus doesn't end there. He tells a parable that's connected. Look at verses 28 and following. He says to them, next breath, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go in and work in the vineyard today. And the son said, I will not. But he, he, he regretted it, is what the text says. He changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the same thing. And that son answered, I will, sir. But then he didn't go. So here's Jesus' question. Which of those two sons did what his father actually wanted? So he asks them a question, and they give an answer. The first, they answered. That's an interesting little riddle here, because now Jesus takes the role of the teacher. They came up to challenge him. He turns it on them, takes the role of the teacher with this little parabolic scenario about two different sons of a father, and and the situation he describes here would be a very typical situation in their time. Maybe a small family farm or vineyard. A father has two sons. Work needs to be done. He goes to them and one responds, you know, one way and one the other. This is what Jesus typically does. He uses really normal kind of scenarios to teach something. Some of you may know, my wife and I have been parenting for 24 and a half years now or so, times six. And if you've ever had kids, or maybe even if you've just been a kid, you know that every kid is different. In fact, last Christmas, we unearthed a bunch of old camcorder videos from when we lived in Scotland and our first few years here many years ago. It was really fun to look at these. It was really interesting to see uh, now that our kids are mostly grown, to see even back in these old videos that you could kind of see different personality types, right? Some compliant, some rebellious, you know, di- different sort of things. And and I think you see in this parable this sort of reality that there you know, there are two different kinds of sons that are represented here. The kind that says no and resists, but then has a soft heart and regrets it and then goes and does what is right. And then there's the one that says, "Yeah, sure, it's fine." and then never follows through. So again, Jesus uses a very typical situation to teach us something. And interestingly, his opponents actually answer correctly. It is the son who said he wouldn't do it and then regretted it and did it. It is that son who did what was right. So even, even though the first son's response to the father was rebellious and dishonoring by saying no, he actually was the one who did right. But Jesus doesn't stop there. There's one more thing he says then to drive it home and show us that this parable is not just about kind of two different personality types. It's about you and me. Look at picking up in verse 31. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That means they're going in and you're not is what that idiom means For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you do not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus ties this whole two-part story that is our text today by bringing John the Baptist, he was talked about in the first part, brings John the Baptist back into it. John who Jesus says was from God, was teaching the true way of righteousness. But those who heard John responded very differently, like two different sons. And this is what we see all throughout the gospels, that when God showed up to change the world, starting with John and then ultimately with Jesus, most of the people who actually received the good news Who welcomed this message of John and Jesus were actually, most of them were not the wealthy and the powerful and the rebellious, but it was mostly the broken and the sick and the humble, the nobodies. Some Pharisees and rabbis did believe, like Nicodemus, others, some wealthy and healthy people, like Joseph of Arimathea, did believe, but for the most part, those people who had much and whose lives were established and recognized in society, like the rich young ruler from chapter 19 last, a couple of weeks ago, most of those people were not very interested in the message of John and Jesus. It's, it's too disruptive. It's, it's too table overturning of my life. It's, there's too much cost to my dignity and my prestige and my power. Thankfully, that's not as much the case today in America, though it may be in the future. It may be that following Jesus is will be more of a loss for someone in America today than it is now. But for sure, in Jesus' own day, it cost people a lot to realign their allegiances to this new good news. And so it was often the broken, the messed up, the the poor of spirit, who were able, when they heard the message of Jesus, to see themselves clearly and to see that John and Jesus were really not just some weirdos who were disruptive, but they were actually sent from God. And notice the really shocking thing here, that Jesus doesn't just say that when John preached that sinners believed, but he uses probably the two most provocative terms he could use when he's dialoguing with these conservative rabbis. He says the tax collectors, that is the sellouts of the Roman empire who are betraying their own Jewish people, and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God and you're not. Those are the two worst people in a conservative rabbi's eyes. This would be like if Jesus walked into our worship service right now, and he said to all of us, you think you're followers of God? I tell you the truth, KKK members and child molesters are entering the kingdom before you. If you're offended by that, welcome to the Bible. Because that's exactly how it would have sounded to the rabbis that Jesus is speaking to. So in Jesus's riddle, the two sons don't just represent two different personality types. They, they represent two different people made in God's image. But what shocks us and gives us pause is that the good son, the one who did what was right ultimately, is represented by sinful people of all kinds, even notoriously bad sinful people who one day wake up and realize who they are and they realize who God is and they repent and they turn and follow him. And who's the bad son? The bad son, shockingly to us in Jesus' parable, is the one who looks good on the outside, who say they're going to do the right thing, who tell the father and others that they're going to do the right thing, but they don't repent and actually follow his ways, represented here by the conservative religious leaders. So what starts off? as the religious leaders challenging and trying to shame Jesus in the temple courts ends up with the tables completely turned on them. Jesus, who is constantly full of kindness and compassion and love for those who need him, he's not afraid to have a conflict with those who are not that way, these false shepherds. So friends, what does this story mean? from 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem have to do with our lives, our real lives today in Louisville? Well, I think to get to that answer, we need to ask this question. What is the difference between these two sons, really? What really is the difference between these two sons who respond in two very different ways? Well, as I've wrestled with that question, here's the answer. Here's the best way I've come to sum it up. The son who does not do the will of God is the one who goes through life in their own power, the master of their own ship of life, and therefore is blind to who God really is. But the son or daughter who does what the father wants is the one, and note this, no matter how bad they have been, no matter how much of their lives they might have wasted, no matter how many mistakes and sins they've been involved in, the difference between the bad son and the good son is that the good son or daughter is the one who sees and repents. It's not the morality of the rest of their lives. It's the one who sees this clearly and repents. So any prostitute or tax collector or KKK member, or murderer, or successful banker, or religious expert, or professional football player, any outwardly good, upstanding citizen, or anyone who would be considered by most of society as at the low end of society, anyone, Jesus is saying, who sees and repents, who turns from that life, whether it was a good life or a bad life, and starts to follow Jesus, that is actually the good son in Jesus' parable. You see, there's nothing inherently better in one son or the other. And in fact, there's nothing better in the good son in terms of outward behavior than the bad son. In fact, it's the opposite. The good son has worse behavior in this scenario, in this this parable. But it's the son who did the father's will in Jesus' parable is the one who sees Jesus and repents, unlike the religious leaders. So Jesus... The wise and authoritative Riddler is doing today, what he's doing today is using this parable to crack open our hearts, to put a lever, to crack, put a crack in our hearts, to help us see clearly, to invite us to repent. In the Zen Buddhist koan and Socrates' ornery questions and other human riddles, They can make us pause and think, but what Jesus is doing here is far more weighty than any of that. He is asking us to stop, to pause, and to be honest, and to look inside at who we are. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, if you're not a Christian yet, and you're hearing these words, (laughs) this is great news because Jesus is calling you today to wake up to actually see yourself clearly in a way you've never seen before, to see reality as it really is. You may be a notoriously bad person in the world's eyes or maybe just in your own eyes. You may be full of shame and guilt, or you may be a good and upstanding citizen who everyone thinks is great and and you think you're pretty great too. Wherever you are, the call is the same to see things clearly and to repent. And the good news, that is to turn to Jesus because the good news is he is authoritative. He is God's own authoritative person in the world and he is compassionate. He welcomes all those who turn. He does not say reform your lives and get back to me later. He welcomes all those who turn so that the tax collectors and the prostitutes as just examples are entering the kingdom of heaven in his own day. The reality is, if you're not a Christian, you need to see you did not make yourself. You cannot sustain your own life. You could die today easily. Your only hope for true life now and eternally is through a relationship with the Father and God who made you and who loves you and wants you to know true life in his kingdom now and forever. And it will cost you everything. Let's just be really straightforward. It's gonna cost you everything. You're gonna have to look at your whole life differently and you're gonna have to reorient your whole life to him. But as one famous Christian so well said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So if you're not a Christian today, this is good news. This is a call to see yourself and God clearly and to repent. If you are a Christian today and you're hearing Jesus' parable, what does it mean for you and me? Well, I think we should ask ourselves, To what degree is it true of me that I am like that other son, the one who says to the father that he's going to do what God says and then doesn't? To what degree am I agreeing to all the Christian stuff, but it's really mostly lip service? You say you believe, you say you want to do what's right, and then you don't. Is that you today? Is God calling some of you Christians here today, to stop hiding? Stop faking it in some area of your life? To wake up and repent? Maybe this is the word you've been waiting to hear from God. You know that there's something that's nagging at your conscience, and this is the moment. That secret sin that's been nagging at you, maybe some financial impropriety, maybe some flirtatious relationship that's going too far. God wants you to thrive. There's no life there. He wants you to be free of such burdens. So today is a day to take this parable from Jesus and let it lever into your heart and crack open your heart and say that I need to see this more clearly and repent And remember that Jesus is both authoritative and compassionate towards you in that. And let me ask you a question and I just want you to be totally honest with yourself now. So far in this sermon, have you been thinking about how it applies to somebody else? (laughs) Maybe you're thinking about your spouse needs to hear this. I'm going to get the tape of that. They need to hear this. Or your kids. Maybe kids, you're thinking, man, I wish my parents would hear this. Maybe it's your friend. Have you found when you hear this parable, you you mostly think about, oh, that's nice. Boy, Jesus really beat them. That was awesome. Well, I have. And all week I've been wrestling with God. God, what do you want me to say to your people through this text this morning? And only last night did it finally dawn on me that before I can answer that question, I have to see that the real question is, what is God saying to me through this text? I mean, I always try to apply the text to myself first, but in this case, this seems so much like Jesus speaking against the bad guys. That's not not referring to me. But then I realized last night and this morning, I am in exactly the place that Jesus' enemies were in this parable. I mean, I'm a Bible expert right? I'm a preacher. I'm the one who tells other people what the Bible says. And Jesus is inviting, Jesus the Riddler is inviting me to look inside and ask, what areas of my life are inconsistent with the rest of my gospel calling? What are the ways in my marriage or my parenting or my friendships or work that I'm, that I'm really just paying lip service On the outside, I'm saying yes to doing what is right, but my heart is not there and I don't really do what God is calling me to do. Jesus, the compassionate authority, is inviting me to look inside and today he's inviting you to look inside as well. The most dangerous response you could have to this text today and this message is thinking that it applies to someone else. This is a call for all of us to see and to repent. You see, the chief priests and the Pharisees' problem, it wasn't lack of Bible knowledge or lack of going to church. They had, they had more of that than any of us. They did that. Their problem was that like the Grinch, we're almost the Grinch season, we're getting there, like the Grinch, in the midst of all their head knowledge, their hearts had shrunk and died. In fact, as I love what Kierkegaard points out that Bible knowledge, Christian involvement can actually be one of the most effective ways that you and I can keep God at a distance. doesn't have to be that, but it can be that because you can think, well, I, I, I got it. I, I understand Christianity. I go to church. I do all the things. I go to Bible study. I would do it. That can be a way that we actually keep God far away. This whole scene between Jesus and the religious leaders and this parable reminds me, and I'll conclude with this, of a crucial time in history when God sent a prophet to use a riddle to crack open someone's heart. That someone had done something horribly wrong and it's recorded, the story is recorded in 2 Samuel 12. It's the great King David who had slept with another man's wife. When she conceived, he had the man killed. And he'd basically gotten away with it. The child had died. He married the second woman. <clears throat> he had all the power. He basically got away with it. But it nearly destroyed his soul. And as a sign of God's great love for Nathan, for David, he sent the prophet Nathan to go and talk to David about this. And we can think separately about what a stressful thing that was for Nathan to be sent by God to go tell the king that he was wrong, but he did it. So Nathan shows up. You can read the story this afternoon in Second Samuel 12. Nathan shows up at David's court and he tells him a story, <laughs> right? He tells him a story. He doesn't go directly at it. He, he comes around with a story and says, there was a rich man who had everything and he saw something that a poor man had and he basically took it by force. Well, King David was rightly outraged and he demanded justice to be done. But it turns out, Nathan's story was a riddle. It was meant to crack open David's ashes, cold and guilt-ridden heart. And with words that still ring and sting through the centuries, Nathan said what? Do you know what he said to David? You are the man a shocking moment. And the good news is David repented. He saw the truth. He didn't hide from it. He repented. And now, friends, the son of David is speaking to you and to me today and inviting us with compassion to open the eyes of our heart that we might find life. Because he looks upon you and welcomes you to see yourself clearly and to repent and to follow him. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, JonathanPennington.com.